This month, our podcast is brought to you by PageSmith. PageSmith is a wonderful new service we've recently come across, which allows readers to create or gift their own personalized poetry collections. You can choose from eight themes and they'll suggest a selection of poems and you can then fully personalize the book's title, dedication and cover. It's gorgeous. So gorgeous. And you know what? These not only make a thoughtful gift for your significant other this Valentine's Day, but would also make a perfect Galentine's gift because who says we shouldn't show some appreciation for our gal pals too? Amen. And Jess and I did exactly that. We're by no means poetry buffs, but it was so easy to do. In fact, it took no more than 10 minutes and I absolutely adored the book Jess made for me. They're so special, aren't they? And because you can choose from eight themes, both of our books were so different. Some of the themes include new horizons, love, well-being, companionship and nature. And so if you're looking to gift a special someone with a personal and thoughtful gift this February, then look no further. They're only available in the UK for now. So visit pagesmithbooks.com to place your order or give them a follow on Insta at pagesmithbooks. Give the gift of poetry this Valentine's and Galentine's Day. Welcome to Book Recos Between the Pages. I'm Jess. And I'm Lauren. And we're the pals behind Book Recos. And this is the podcast where we chat all things books and just about everything in between. And we are so excited for today's episode as we are interviewing Coco Mellers on her debut novel Cleopatra and Frankenstein. Jess and I went absolutely nuts for this book after we read it and we are thrilled to be speaking with Coco today to get into the nitty gritty of her beautiful book. Welcome to the podcast, Coco. We are so excited to be having this conversation with you today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, um, Coco, we have a bit of um, a thing on the podcast where Jess asks me to drop the synop. And but as we have you on today, could you kick us off by telling listeners a little bit about your book? Sure. So um, Cleopatra and Frankenstein is my debut novel. It's set in New York in the early 2000s. And the kind of heartbeat of the story is this relationship between a couple, Cleo and Frank, who um, have a 20 year age difference. They meet on New Year's Eve. They have this like kind of classic meet cute where they sort of immediately have this electrifying, intense chemistry. They're really in love. And then six months later, they decide to get married kind of spontaneously, partly because of the depth of their feelings for each other, but also partly because Cleo needs a green card to stay in America. And um, the story is told, you know, from their perspectives, Cleo and Frank, but also from the perspective of a number of their friends and family who are also really affected by this union. So it's a sort of ensemble cast novel. And um, I like to think that it's like, the night out and the morning after it's like all the glamour and glitz and fun of living in New York and that it's kind of like the fall of that fantasy and what it's like the next morning when the sun comes up and everything's a little bit wrecked I love that that is such a perfect description and I also love that you thought you said it was an ensemble cast because it so is you know Cleo and Frank are our protagonists but it's it is about 
everyone that comes together and it does feel like it's a group gr- um a book about this group rather than mm-hmm. the couple god oh it's so good um as soon as we heard the blurb we we knew it was one that we both had to read so we don't always read the same books um but there are some that we do buddy read together and it'll either be because we know it's one that we're both gonna love or one that's going to be so great for a podcast discussion and this ticked both boxes <laughs> um and we just cannot believe that this is your first book yeah. um and I read that it's that it took you five years to write so I wonder how does that feel for it to finally be out in the world and no longer something that just exists in your head I mean it feels amazing it did take (laughs) it took five years to write and then it took two years to come out so that's a seven year process from basically start to finish which is you know I'm 32 I started the book when I was 25 so there's a huge difference between being in your mid-20s and your (laughs) early 30s like just as a you know woman and as a human being yeah, yeah. and then also as an author so um yeah it feels, it feels sometimes I can't believe that it's actually in the world because I've lived with these characters privately for so so long and then to hear people's reactions and the kind of intensity of the connection to the characters even if sometimes the reactions are frustration and anger you know these characters are really flawed and really imperfect and they do a lot of you know questionable things throughout the course of the novel but I I hope that's what makes them so human so yeah yeah, it feels incredible I'm just just delighted it's like not just my mom reading it anymore (laughs) (laughs) and so you just said then that it was so five years to write and then two years to get published how how was that that two years then when you were like I've got this finished product and now I just need to get it out yeah there how how was that the two years actually was after I sold the book. It's just uh, like books take a long time to come out. <laughs> Publishing is like really a process of patience. Mm. And then also because of the pandemic, I think the release date got pushed. Oh, so course. I sold it when I was 30. It's come out when I'm 32. And then I, I edited it with my editors in the UK and the US for a year. And then there's like another year of just sort of promotion and getting the book printed yeah. Um, but I, it was kind of amazing because I, I think it's a little bit like a wedding actually, or about <laughs> some, you know, people plan their weddings for years. And yeah. so I just had this thing to look forward to for a really long time. So. Oh, that's such a nice way to think about it. Yeah, definitely. And I want to get on to some of the characters in a minute, because as you said, they all have backgrounds and they are this ensemble. Uh, but before we do, this is a question that I just really love to ask authors is Jess and I've spoken in the past like what would it be like to write a book and one day um you know maybe that's something one day that we would look to do but what came first for you was it the desire to write a book or was it that you had this story and you're like okay I have to write this story that's such a great question. I definitely always, I mean, I read novels growing up, as most people who have become writers <laughs> do, and I, I loved novels and I always wanted to write one, but I felt like too scared to say like, I want to write a book because I truly had no idea how you yeah. do that. Like a novel is such an unwieldy and often large and kind of clunky thing to work on. So what I started writing, I did an MFA at NYU And I had a teacher, Amy Hempel, who's an amazing writer who actually works in short form. She does a lot of flash fiction and short stories. And as a result, she was very good on like just focusing on a scene at a time, not thinking like too big picture. So I started writing one scene 
Um, and I had no idea whether if it was going to be a book. I had no idea what it was going to be. I just had this. I wrote the honeymoon scene. Actually, it was the first thing I ever Amazing. wrote, which is where Frank balances on the balcony and tries to bet with the other hotel guests whether he can dive into the swimming pool below. It was an exercise. We were asked to write a scene in which the emotional topography was in kind of direct contradiction to what you would expect to be happening because of the setting. So like a funeral in which the you know narrator finds everything very funny or a wedding yeah. in which everything's very sad. So a honeymoon in which there's a moment of like real disharmony. <laughs> so I wrote that as an exercise and I started imagining who the couple could be. And then it just kind of kept growing from there but it was very I had no idea where it was going the entire time I was writing it so that is absolutely fascinating and I'm sure it'd be really inspirational for people listening who you know have thought oh wouldn't it be nice to write a book one day that you can just start from writing a scene and just seeing where that takes you that's really interesting yeah, it really is just a collection of scenes. That's a novel. Yeah. So if you just focus, it's like keeping it in the day in life. You know, you focus on the day you're in and then slowly, slowly you build years of a life. So I found that to be very helpful in novel writing too. Otherwise, it's extremely overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, speaking of that, the evolution from the scene to book, and you, you mentioned how it was five years of writing and you were in your early 20s and then early 30s. Did the... Did the characters evolve over, did they age with you? And as you were writing them, did you find that the book molded to based on how you were then feeling? Yes, I definitely did. I think that would have been impossible for that not to happen. You know, I started writing the book almost like myself with such innocence. um, And then throughout the course of writing the book, like I learned so much about myself. Like I got sober when I was 26. So I thought I was writing a book that wasn't about addiction. I just thought my characters were kind of normal and hard partying. (laughs) And then I had this like total revelation where I was like, oh no, like this is not healthy or not, you know, this is something that really needs to be looked at. So like my intention was never to write a novel in which there was a trajectory from, you know, sort of addiction to recovery. Or um, I also think for Cleo, this wasn't conscious, but I guess I was interested in exploring this kind of capital of desirability that's granted to young women, you know, for their youth or their beauty in their 20s. You know, Frank is in his mid 40s, Cleo's in her early 20s. Mm. And um, throughout the course of the novel, I could kind of see by watching these characters play out the relationship, how illusory that power is, how what Cleo thinks is an empowering act kind of turns out to be something that puts her almost in a worse place than where she started. So that was also news to me. You know, that was something I learned throughout the course of my 20s. I was like, oh, like, I don't know if power is being desired. I think that power has to come from me, (laughs) you know? So that was my own transition as well. That's beautiful. And you really do see that that journey that that the characters go on to find that sort of perspective towards the end of the book as well and um, when I start to read a book that I know I'm going to talk about on the podcast with Jess um, I always have like a note the notes app the notes app open on my phone and I just write my favorite quotes and you know thoughts that come up when I'm reading the book and um, the first note I wrote about your book um, was 
this is the strongest opening of a book I've read in such a long time. Honestly, I can't describe it. The feeling of reading like those first pages, I was just totally engrossed from the first page. It was just so, the dialogue was so playful between Cleo and Frank and the conversation was just so engaging. And I wrote down the quote where Frank said to Cleo, I think it's something along the lines of, your voice sounds like a granny smith apple and I just think that was absolutely the best analogy and like gave such a clear description of Cleo as well and did it take you a while a while to find your writing style or was it something that sort of progressed and came to you very naturally for the book I think Dialogue, I think all writers have their like specific skill sets and then they have things that are more challenging for them. And for me, like, and with one of my best friends who's a writer, we have the opposite where like, I love writing dialogue and I feel like I, I can, I spend a lot of time like kind of eavesdropping and listening to people. And I also use the notes app on my phone constantly. I'm always writing down like turns of phrases that I find interesting or just unique. So, um, Dialogue, I think, is something that for me, like that's sort of like an e- that's an easier form of writing. I really struggle now, especially in my second book. I'm noticing it with like physical descriptions of places. I'm like, I've got another house. I don't want to describe the <laughs> house or the furniture or the architecture, but you have to because that's how people can see it. So, and my, you know, I have writer friends who they could just like they could describe a chair and egg <laughs> so beautifully. You know, it's like they're like still life painters but they don't enjoy writing dialogue and they find it like kind of difficult. So the first chapter is very dialogue heavy. I went back for a long time. The opening chapter is the second chapter in this book, which is the wedding chapter, which um, I think is a good chapter because it you know introduces you to all the characters that are going to be important mm-hmm. in the book. But I began to realize that as an opening, it wasn't that strong because it's kind of overwhelming to like meet everyone yes. in one go. And I wanted readers to feel invested in Cleo and Frank as a couple yeah. So I probably wrote that chapter maybe like three years into working on the book. So what certainly wasn't the starting point. And what was good is that by that point, I really knew them. You know, I really knew Cleo and I really knew Frank. So their voices were just like, they were just fluent in my head. Um, And I wanted to write a chapter that was very light on the page, which is what dialogue does. And I would listen over and over and over again to this one song that has a kind of pitter-patter drum beat that would go... And I would try to get the dialogue to pitter-patter like that. So you have that kind of heart racing feeling yeah. when you're reading it of falling in love. It's all lust, really, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I was trying to get that on the page. So hopefully by the end of that first chapter, your heart is kind of racing a little and like you feel like this exciting thing has just happened in your life. <laughs> oh, my is- God. So cool. <laughs> yeah. And now you said it, I can really I'm going to read back the first chapter again, but I can see it in my head how that pitter patter comes across like you say it's just so like there's a dynamism to that conversation that really comes through yeah and I it's interesting to hear you say that you prefer writing dialogue because I definitely read faster when it's dialogue than when it's heavy descriptions as much as I love a description I do love a description about a house because I really like to pretend I'm in that (laughs) house I'm sorry um (laughs) It is such a good opening chapter. I read, I had all my boyfriend and all his family around to watch a rugby game and I'm not interested in rugby. So I, <laughs> I legitimately sat there in my armchair reading your book while they all <laughs> rowdily watched the rugby. And I was able to be completely engrossed for 150 pages in one go 
with all of them screaming because I was like, I, I need to, I need to see what's going to happen with Cleo and Frank. And that's all down to that first chapter. Um, speaking of the writing style, I have to talk about Eleanor's chapters because they were my absolute favorite. Yeah. I love Eleanor. I love her mother. And um, they're, they're written for anyone that hasn't read it yet. as like little short paragraphs written in first person from Eleanor. And they're like a running commentary of her life and I'm going to just share a bit that really made me laugh out loud during the rugby game and <laughs> um, it's where Eleanor's in a gift shop and she sees um, a tea towel that says you don't stop gardening because you get old you get old because you stop gardening and she thinks it's quite a nice gift for her mother but then as she goes around the gift shop she keeps saying you don't stop playing because you get old you get old because you stop playing and lots of she just gets a bit bored of it and so she tells her mum about it and her mum says, you don't stop bullshitting because you get old. And Eleanor says, get old because life's bullshit. <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny. And I'm just so pleased that Eleanor and her chapters exist in this book and Same. the world. And I wondered if there was any, you know, what, I'm sure there was, what thought was behind having Eleanor's chapters being in such a different style to the rest of the book? Yeah, it was definitely a bit of a risk because the, the whole book is written in close third, you know, from different perspectives. And then suddenly we have first person. And I think for some readers, it's like a little jarring. You're like, oh, my God, who, what are we doing here? But I really there were a couple of reasons I did it. One is like when you work on a novel for as long as I did with this, like at a certain point, I just wanted to try something new. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I can either write a totally separate novel that's in this first person fragment style or I can experiment and see how it would work within the context of Cleo and Frank. So um, that was part of it. it was just like, because I wanted to, <laughs> and I was a little bored. And, so, and the second is that I knew partly because of that first chapter that if I was going to introduce, you know, and this is in quotes and like another woman, you know, someone who would be disruptive in some way to this marriage and play the role of someone you know, who I think as a society, we could have a lot of judgment towards, which is yeah. someone who, you know, falls for someone in a in a relationship with someone else. I really wanted um, us to identify with her very, very deeply. And one of the quickest ways to do that is to put her in first person so that we have no choice but to be there with her. Yeah. And I really, you know, when I first started writing, I remember I was very like serious all the time in my writing. Like everything was very like, I don't know, austere. And I think like, it's actually much harder to move people than impress people. And I think yeah. for a long time, I was trying to be impressive as a writer. But actually, like, in my own life, you know, it's like Eleanor's voice is very close to my own. You know, what she notices and finds funny are the things that I've noticed and found funny <laughs> in my life. And I thought, like, there should be room for that in a literary fiction novel, that humour yeah. and that kind of lightness. Um, even if, it, you know, in Eleanor's case, that, that humour is actually deflecting from a lot of grief and a lot of sadness. And I think mm -hmm. that's also very true. To how we live our lives yeah. totally and um, and you said before that you keep your notes up open and you know Always. write some comments from that you just hear were any of um Eleanor's comments like real life Oh my god! From Conversations almost, you overheard. Almost all of them. <laughs> I was really I, hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> I have been keeping like notes because I before I had notes app on my phone, I just would yeah. do it in like a notebook or in scraps of paper. But then it was like I had hundreds, hundreds, yeah. and hundreds of these like things I had noticed and found funny, and I always wondered like what can I possibly do with this? Like it's yes. like little scraps, and it's kind of like a magpie making a nest, you know, and picking up all the shiny things, and then 
so the Eleanor chapters I was so happy because like it just in a kind of economical sense I was like I finally have use for them (laughs) and I just gave them some of them I would make up to because they would I would need something I was like you know I was very aware of the rhythms of that chapter so I would be like okay like there's a lot of like silliness and lightness and then I need to go a little heavier here so a lot of the hospital stuff is completely made up but everything around like copyright you know I worked as a fashion copywriter she works as an advertising copywriter so a lot of the like corporate life stuff it's just that's like how I survived working (laughs) full-time in a copywriting job I was like one day I will use this yes this is (laughs) this is going to be my material my favorite quote of Eleanor's was I think she's like queuing in a Starbucks or something and she overhears a woman on the phone and she says something like my hair looks great but generally my life is falling apart I was like (laughs) I can hard relate to that like those days where you look great but inside things just going to shit um so I really want to talk about Cleo for a little bit because she is this like almost like angelic character she's very beautiful from your descriptions of her she's almost got like this ethereal quality around her um and I think when we first meet her at the beginning of the book um I thought she was like your stereotypical it girl like she was the the girl in the book that you know everybody wanted to be around she lives in New York she's very popular maybe um but then like the more you got to know her throughout the book the more complicated she came across and it was almost Mm. like every time you thought you'd cracked her and gotten to know her she showed you another side of her that made you reconsider um and for example she obviously likes to do a lot of drinking and drugs um but she I found it really interesting that she was the only character who could see Frank's drinking problem for what it truly was so how just tell us yeah if you can a bit about what it was like writing her and like how you got inside her head and how this complicated character made sense to you and how you communicated yeah I'm really I'm always happy to talk about Cleo because actually you know she's the character that I struggled with the most when I was writing I had a really hard time getting close to her um I think because we were the same you know I was 25 when I started writing this she's 24 in the book Mm. um and she's British and I'm British and she's a sort of aspiring artist I'm a writer there were a lot of like superficial similarities between us and partly because I struggled with her so much I ended up giving her things like I I have long blonde hair and I gave her my hair I gave her my cowboy boots I gave her (laughs) the brand of cigarette that I used to smoke pre no longer like three years off cigarettes yay but (laughs) I like I really struggled to bring her to life for a long time so I ended up like kind of giving her these little pieces of me being like okay if I give you this if I give you this will you kind of get a little more like you know I don't know energized on the page but that was partly because what I love about her as a character is she's very sublimated and she's highly visual she's a painter she's not that verbal which is unusual for this group you know this book is like it's a lot of like wordplay and like kind of competitive dialogue where everyone's trying to one-up each other and Cleo doesn't really do that you know she sort of like allows herself to be um in the background sometimes and she's an observer and so she sees other people very very clearly like she sees Frank for who he is which is part of what he loves about her and part of what he fears about her And so it took me like slowly, slowly over years, it took me a while to like, I felt like I was kind of, it was like a sort of deer out of a forest, like some wild and mysterious animal that I was coaxing slowly towards me. And finally, when I wrote, I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's a scene, you know, sort of in the middle of the book, pretty devastating with Cleo. 
and it's I think kind of a surprise sometimes to the readers that she takes this pretty intense physical act you know to try to change her life or um by the time I got to that scene I suddenly I knew her and I think part of the reason I had such a hard time getting to know her is that I found her sadness almost unbearable to be so Mm -hmm. close to like when I really got to the core of her what I felt was actually this intense hopelessness and grief that I had been kind of pulling away from for a long time so it was hard to like that scene I remember writing it in the library late at night and just thinking like oh my god like I want her to be okay you know I want I want her to be I don't want this for her but it was it was the truth of her experience at that time especially if you like you said you've given so much of yourself to her it becomes quite I imagine quite a personal experience then like you say you've given her your hair your her cow your cowboy boots and, <laughs> and then she does something really dramatic yeah I imagine it would yeah. just be really personal yeah hearing yeah. her hearing you describe her as like a deer that you had to coax out she's such a deer that is like a spot-on animal she's so gorgeous <laughs> and majestic but so hidden and yeah it's her spirit Love animal. That. animal that is her spirit animal <laughs> that's the word I'm looking for um but it's she's she's per, like she's perfect to me for this book and this love story. And it's it's not your usual love story. And there's a quote um, on the back of the book from the night that um, Cleo and Frank met where it says they climbed to the first landing. They had to clear roughly 10 steps to land on the ground floor. It was the kind of game children played, daring themselves to climb higher and higher. He took her hand. She squeezed it back. They both jumped. And I just love it. And it's almost an analogy of their entire relationship the sense that both characters are just like egging each other on they get an illegal pet for crying out loud like they just don't know what they're going getting into but they do it anyways um and I wondered do you think that without Cleo's need for citizenship they would have still got married because of that compulsiveness Oh, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I do. I truly, I, I think it's very interesting when there's like outside forces that keep a couple together. So they're yeah. forced to reckon with parts of themselves that they maybe wouldn't otherwise. Um, I, I don't think they would have got married because I think um, they're quite untraditional characters. And so I don't, they aren't living life, you know, marriage, children, you know, some yeah, of these yeah. kind of like traditional signposts of adulthood you know, Frank's not living that way. And really, nor is Cleo, you know, Cleo's, you know, chosen to be an artist, she wants to live a more kind of bohemian lifestyle. So I actually think marriage is something that like, unless it had some like personal, you know, practical necessity, I don't know that either of them would have maybe leaned towards that. But I certainly think they would have been together regardless, because their, their chemistry and the kind of intensity of that connection that they have, which remains intact all the way through the novel, you know, no matter what happens, no matter how much they hurt each other, there is something in the other person that they feel so deeply connected to, almost crave, you know? Yeah. So, and I think there's so much hope projected onto the other, you know, this idea that yeah. if I can help you, I can help myself. If I can change you, I can change myself. If I can heal you, I can heal myself, which is very common, I think, in relationships, especially in, in your 20s. You know, Frank is a little stunted, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's like the saying, like, the trauma bonds they're both attracted to each other through their own traumas aren't they and they've both had Mm. very similar traumas in their lives um and they almost get quite competitive about their uh, upbringings and how damaged 
quote unquote damaged they are from their childhoods and how fucked up their parents made them. And they, and it's always like this competitive edge to their relationship where it's like, no, I'm more damaged than you. And it's always like this naivety yeah. comes through from them. Um, but the same could probably be said for most of the characters in the book. Um, they're all quite destructive and seek out, I'd say, scenarios that will cause them pain later down the line. And one character I was just totally fascinated by was Quentin. Um, mm. Have I said his name right? It's Quentin, isn't it? Yeah, yes. yeah, Quentin. <laughs> Had a moment then where I was like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> so you see Quentin, he's this, he's a queer man in the book and he's not come out to his family yet, but he gets very... Um, almost like obsessive over well maybe not obsessive isn't quite the right word but he gets quite fixated around his relationship with Cleo and they like have a fake relationship for for the purpose of his family but you almost get the impression that he almost wants a relationship with her but um what was your motivation behind Quentin's character and the role he plays in the book you know he was a character that really came to me my headphone just fell out um he kind of came to me completely whole (laughs) like I just he was not like Cleo like I didn't have to take a long time like he's in that wedding scene he gives her a Fabergé egg full of cocaine and like I knew Quentin (laughs) you know I was just like I knew his personality and um one of the reasons I wanted to write a chapter from his perspective and it comes relatively early on in the novel is that you know, the, what I'm very interested in over and over again in the book is this difference between how the characters appear in the group setting publicly and then how, who they are when they're alone. And um, Quentin is someone who has a very prickly facade, you know, and he's built up a lot of defense mechanisms. Mm-hmm. He's can be very cutting. He can be, he's very quick. He's highly intelligent. He can be quite cruel. Yeah. So I, I wanted um, to have a chapter where we are closer to him and we see him when he's a little less guarded when um, some of that kind of defense has come down and we can touch a little bit on some of the loneliness that's clearly at his center. You know, that I think to have to live closeted because your family won't accept you for who you are is about as devastating an experience as can happen to a human being. And, you know, it's tied up as with many characters also with a kind of financial strain because his, you know, he comes from this Polish family of well, you know, his wealthy grandmother who's paying for him. So, I was like, I think it's easy to judge a character like Quentin who can sometimes say or do things that are pretty mean, but I really want every, the ex- whole novel is an exercise in empathy. You know, what is it actually like when you're to be close to these yeah. people? Like, and, and I hope a kind of dropping of judgment and like a raising of compassion, even if at the same time you can feel like annoyed by what Quentin does and says, but he's certainly not the, uh, you know, it's not, hopefully it's becoming less and less usual but it's it's not unusual to have to live a sort of double life as a queer person it's something that I wanted to look at and and to really kind of be honest about the sort of devastating effects that can have on Mm -hmm. someone you know Quentin also is not very old he's the same age as Cleo so as I keep getting older and they stay the same age (laughs) I I increasingly feel good about I'm like you guys are babies (laughs) (laughs) well one baby in the book is Zoe who I just loved and she's so interesting and she goes on such a journey um I think she could just have her own book John do a spin-off about Zoe (laughs) (laughs) yeah Zoe was such a I mean I loved writing her she was another character who was in the wedding scene she's 19 years old she's Frank's half-sister they have the same mother who is white and they have different fathers and Zoe's father is black 
So I was really interested in exploring that racial component. You know, what does it feel like to be part of a white family and a white friend group when, you know, you're raised by a white mother, but your experiences as a black woman. And, um, and because she's also 19, I gave her a lot of like the kind of like mischief and like naughtiness. Like she's just like, I think I co- was completely charmed by her as a character. I found nice. her like just cause so effervescent and uh, alive and she's very clever and she's very adventurous and curious and her confidence is was just completely disarming to me. So I really wanted her to have her own storyline. And it was also important to me that characters who are queer or black are not only there as a foil to the sort of straight white couple at the center of the book you know I would have that was something that's not true to life Mm -hmm. you know and I wanted them to feel as like robust and kind of richly imagined and lived in and explored as Cleo and Frank and some of the other characters so Zoe ended up getting two chapters in the book most of the other characters only get you know other than Cleo and Frank only get one but I just couldn't leave her (laughs) yeah yeah. I know, especially when she when you when she says at one point she's never had an orgasm. You're like, oh my god! Like she's 19 years old, and there's this one side of her she, where she's like, thinks she's like knows everything, and then there's this other really vulnerable side to her where she like admits things that you you wouldn't necessarily say out loud. Or, um, yeah, I just thought, yeah, as Jess said. A spin-off for Zoe, I think, is yeah. so needed, <laughs> especially with that little taster you gave at the end in Rome, sort of like suggesting what Zoe's doing now. And I'm like, yes, Zoe. <laughs> yeah, Zoe, Zoe has a nice ending in the book. I think I'm like very proud of where, because, you know, 19 is so young, like there's yeah. so much left for her to explore and discover about herself and her relationship with her body and like the body in general, yes. because she also has epilepsy which was something that I wanted to write about. One of my best friends has epilepsy and we talked so much about how that affected her life and her relationship to her physical self. So it was something that I was happy, you know, I I let characters just be characters. I try not to make them like tools to like discuss larger themes. You know, it's like they're people and they should just be people. But there was a lot of stuff. Zoe's a very complicated character who's full of contradictions. You know, she's so confident and she's also like a lot of 19 year olds, very unsure and insecure. You know, Mm -hmm. she's, so kind of like you know because she's an actress she's like so physical and like so open about herself and then on this other hand she like really doesn't know herself yet yeah, you know yeah. exactly genius um and on that note at the beginning you said you're working on your second book at the moment is yeah. that right I'm finishing it up at the moment yeah it's oh mostly written goodness. which is very cool it was wow. this one was a bit faster than the first but that was, <laughs> that was a pleasant surprise <laughs> um, what's in store for the second then is there anything you can tell us yes yeah, so this book I mean I would say tonally and in terms of the writing style it's very similar to Cleo and Frank in that it's close third and I move between perspectives but it's a tighter lens um so it's three characters it's three sisters and I, the story is told from each of their perspectives and it opens on the one year anniversary of the fourth sister's death. So it's about, you know, what does a family look like when it's changed, you know, when there's been a loss and the sort of dynamic of the family has changed irreconcilably. But a little bit kind of like in the Eleanor chapters, which are first person, but I was very interested in how grief can be explored through humor and lightness and in some ways like even when something that's so painful as losing a sibling happens, like what uh, what is allowed to change yeah. or sort of be freed in the characters in the wake of that? 
So I'm always like, it's a book about like family and addiction and death, but it's kind of funny <laughs> and sort of glam. <laughs> Have you read <laughs> Out of Interest, Jesse Cave's book, Sunset? I haven't. We actually have the same agent and my agent oh, sent it to me and I need to read it. It's on my list. But I read um, Miriam Toza's novel, All My uh, Puny Sorrows, which I thought was just like absolutely breathtaking. She's really incredible. She's a very, very funny and quick writer. Mm. Um, so I hope, yeah. And the ca- the sisters, Sounds again, brilliant. they kind of arrived to me just exactly as they are. They're so distinct and they're such, and they're just so, they're so alive. So I'm, I've, I've loved living with them these past few years. <laughs> I, I mean, I was already going to read whatever you wrote next, but I adore reading books about sisters because I have four sisters so I always find yeah yeah (laughs) and there's a 20 year age gap between the oldest and the youngest um no boys all girls no boys (laughs) not allowed were they (laughs) there's something kind of magic about that yeah when I started writing this book I spoke to one of my best friends is one of four girls I'm one of four but it's three girls one boy but there's something, the the line that someone said to me, which I loved is they said, until you know my sisters, you don't really know me. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like that mm-hmm. for me, that was kind of the seed of the whole novel is what yeah. is it to be known? You know, and I think parents, we talk a lot, especially in, ther- I'm in therapy, I love therapy, like Jung and Freud and, you know, psychoanalysts, we talk a lot about like the role of parents and forming yeah. us, but siblings are like, they, I feel like I am who I am because my sister is who she is, you know? 100%. And I am who I am because I am a younger sister, but also I am who I am because I am an older sister. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm so in, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we let you go, we've got one final question. Um, your book is hands down a five-star reco from us. Um, and so we just wanted, if you have a five-star reco to share with our listeners, Oh, yes. I'm going to pick another debut novel, which I thought was absolutely incredible, which is Detransition Baby by (gasps) Tori Peters. Just absolutely loved it. I feel like it's been out for a little bit. So I'm like, it's anyone who's in the know, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, you know, I think there's so much out there. But for me, that novel just really, really cut through. It is so, it's dazzling. It just was dazzling, I thought. And an extremely sort of generous and like, insight into trans women and their communities and what it's you know what the relationship is like between two trans women which we normally would never really have access to you know I'm a cisgender woman that's something that I wouldn't be able to see so I thought and I thought the writing was impeccable I just everything about it I thought was amazing so Tori I really want to be Tori Peters's friend I follow her on Instagram (laughs) she hasn't followed me back I think she like lives in the woods with her wife so I'm like I don't I, but she seems so cool so. I love that <laughs> honestly we um we both read that book last year and it's oh it, it just stays with you doesn't it it's just yeah. such a compelling story so interesting and it's just come out in paperback as well I think so yeah. even oh, more great. reason to okay, go and buy it timing. yeah yeah and Tori if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> I hope Tori is listening oh my god <laughs> we need to um get uh, her to read Cleopatra and Frankenstein we definitely that, do. that's the key yeah. um oh thank you so much this has been such a pleasure and I've just found it so interesting hearing all the backstories of such an Same. amazing book so thank you so much and huge congratulations as well five years is 
so five years to commit to anything is (laughs) an achievement in itself and to have such a beautiful book at the end of it I mean you must be so proud um you're on your book tour at the moment as well aren't you are you coming to London at all I am. I'm going to come to London, I hope, in April. I'm coming back to see my family anyway, because my whole family live in England. So um, while I'm there, I just feel like I, I have to do some readings. Yeah, I really absolutely. am like dying to meet. Because I think, amazingly, the UK readership, I have found, at least based on like Bookstagram, yeah. have embraced this book with just like such yeah. a generosity and a ferocity that I wasn't... Exp- I thought, oh, America, it's a New York novel. But it really kind of feels like an amazing homecoming. It's made me feel very, very proud to be British, to see the kind of English reaction to the book. So I am like dying to come back and do some (laughs) reading. So hopefully in the spring, April is the plan. We'll definitely keep an eye out. Yeah, we'll be there. Well, thank you so much, Cleo. Um, I'm always glad you came no, you have you. no idea how many times that has happened. It happened in an interview and I didn't correct her. And then oh, she just no. kept doing it. And I was like, oh no, now it's too late. And so for the entire interview, she called me Cleo and then Coco and Frank. Oh, and I was no. like, I was like, at least I did like, that. I know, but it was like my fault. I was like, it's too late to correct it. Now. Yeah, yeah. You've crossed the line where you're like, no, this is just my name now. This I'm is my name. I'm going to have to republish the book and change everything around. I know. <laughs> I ended up like getting a fit of the giggles because I was laughing to myself. I was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> just, let her know. She'll just apologize and move on. But, yeah, she'll just um, laugh it off. Exactly, well, Coco, exactly. it has been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your time today. and and congrats again on your fantastic new book we're giving you a chance to win a february books the battle box which includes a paperback copy of coco mello's record the transition baby by tori peters there are two ways to enter if like me you listen on apple Podcasts, then subscribe leave a rating and review and use your instagram handle as your nickname on the review or if like me, you listen on Spotify or anywhere else, then follow the podcast on that platform and share a screenshot on your Insta story tagging at Book Records for the entry that way. Entries for the February box close on Monday the 28th of February and the winner will be announced on our Instagram on Tuesday the 2nd of March. If you're listening to this at a later date, then don't worry, it's a monthly competition, so still enter and we'll count your entry towards whatever box it is at the time. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.